Welcome to the Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth presented by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Each week, we will explore central topics of the Christian faith and practice, emphasizing what it means to be a member of a community committed to spiritual growth in Christ. Our focus for season one is mapping the Christian faith, and episode three is titled, How Do We Get There? Part Two, The Spirit as a Guide in Scripture. Today's discussion is led by guest speaker, Dr. Wesley Hill, an associate professor of the New Testament at Western Theological Seminary, and it was originally recorded on September 24th, 2023. A warm welcome to all of you for this Mapping the Christian Faith uh, series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. We're going to be looking today at the person of the Holy Spirit, and particularly how the Spirit comes to bear on our experience, our lives in Christ. And we're going to focus on how the Spirit uses the Holy Scriptures to make us more like Jesus. So that's the theme for this morning. And there will be some time at the end for a couple of questions. So uh, think of what you might want to ask, and, and there will be space to do that at the end. The first thing I want us to reflect on about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit represents the future promises of God, God's promise to remake the entire world, to undo the effects of sin and death. The Spirit represents that future breaking into our present. Now, one of the most striking metaphors that St. Paul uses to talk about the Spirit is that the Spirit is the down payment on our future inheritance. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. You think about a down payment. When, when someone receives a down payment, it's an earnest, it's a guarantee that the rest of the payment will arrive. Or we, we might slightly shift the metaphor and say the Spirit is like an engagement ring. We receive it and it promises us that the wedding will follow eventually. So the Spirit is our present tangible experience of what we are heading towards in God's future. I find that to be a wonderful way to think about the Holy Spirit. And if you look at uh, the handout, the second text there is from the prophetic book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And I want you to hear, as I read this text, the future dimension of the Spirit's work. God, speaking through the prophet, says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, those words were given to Israel in a time of national distress. 
The people had fallen into idolatry. Exile was their experience. They, they lost the land that God had promised to their ancestors. And they're wondering, is there a future for our relationship with God? Is there any ongoing covenant that we can expect to enjoy with God? And the, the word that God gives here is, yes, there is because of the Spirit. I will put my spirit within you so that even though you broke the covenant in the past, that breaking will not be the final word. The final word will be restoration and redemption. I will write my laws, not just on tablets of stone, but on your living heart so that you will love God and and delight in God from the heart. And that, that future dimension comes into the present in the story of Pentecost, of course, which is also there on your handout. I think it's the one, two, three, fourth text uh, down on the handout. Let me just read this. This is the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This is, of course, uh, immediately following Easter Sunday. Jesus is risen, but he's now departed from them, and the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where, where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. If you picture those, those paintings, of, it looks like each one of them became a little candle with the flickering tongue of flame above their heads. That, that was the visual representation of the Spirit falling upon them, the Spirit of the risen Jesus. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And if we were to go on reading in Acts 2, we would hear the Apostle Peter interpreting that experience and saying, all those promises from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, all the Old Testament looking forward to the future arrival of God's Spirit, that is taking place now in Jerusalem. And you can see it among you, and you can hear it. As we proclaim, all these gathered, there there weren't just Jews, there were many nationalities represented, and they all heard the good news of God in Christ in their own language. The Spirit representing the the inbreaking of the future, coming in and bringing Jesus home to his followers. That's the core idea. Robert Jensen, who probably is my favorite theologian, he says, the Spirit is the wind of God's own life blowing on history that keeps it moving and keeps it moving toward the coming kingdom of God, which we're hoping for. Now, as we go on and read the New Testament, we see how the Spirit accomplishes this bringing to bear of the future on the present. And the Spirit represents the the engine or the dynamism, we might say, of our Christian lives. Jensen uses the verb agitates, which I think is pretty great. The Spirit agitates, hovers over the water, stirs things up, and pushes us toward more and more likeness to our Lord Jesus. Paul draws a close link between Jesus, the risen one, and now the presence of the Holy Spirit that we experience. This is the the first text on your handout. He says, therefore, I want you to understand 
that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What he's getting at there is that the Spirit, by rushing onto us, by enlivening, enlivening us, agitating us, is the one who enables our relationship with Jesus the Son and thereby our relationship with God the Father, the transcendent one that Jesus called Abba. This is a very important point, friends, because a lot of our talk about the Spirit can quickly become vague. In the 1930s in Germany, it was popular to talk about the, the German spirit, the spirit of the people. And we all know where that led. It led to genocide. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the martyrs of that horrible time in history, he found himself defending that phrase that we say in the creed, that the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son. And Bonhoeffer said that and from the son is so important. Because if you think that the Spirit is leading you to endorse violence or demeaning of other human beings, that must be a different Spirit than the Spirit of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who, rather than consume his enemies with, with judgment, laid down his life for his enemies on the cross. And therefore, if we want to know who the Spirit is, what the identity of the Spirit is, we have to see the Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. So it's crucial to see that link, I think, that Paul draws between our experience of the Holy Spirit and the identity of our Lord Jesus. The Spirit will never lead us to, to disjoin those, to break those apart. The Spirit is the one who leads us deeper into conformity to our Lord Jesus Christ. One of St. Augustine's favorite uh, verses for talking about the Holy Spirit comes in Romans 5. I just want to read this to you. Uh, Paul is writing about our present experience of uh, the Spirit, and he says, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, a lot, of, a lot of readers of the Bible have thought that that's God's own love for us being poured into our experience by the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that's a wrong idea. But St. Augustine went even further and said, it's not just God's love for us. It's our love for God that is evoked and drawn out by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who, who comes to grip our experience in such a way that we share in the love of God, the love for God, that Jesus himself had. One of my very favorite passages in the whole New Testament for thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the very beginning of, of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it's very striking. He says, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the reason that's so striking is Abba is not a Greek word. Paul's writing this letter in Greek, but Abba is an Aramaic word. So why would a Greek writer like Paul suddenly switch to using an Aramaic word? 
And the answer is almost certainly that Paul is alluding to, he's, he's pointing us back to the prayer life of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who knew the God of Israel, the creator of all things, with a unique intimacy. And one of the things that his early followers remembered about him is that he called the God of Israel, the, the Almighty One, the Lord of hosts, he called God Abba. He called God Father. And what Paul is saying is that the spirit of that Lord has now indwelt us, come into our hearts, into our lives, so that we can join Jesus in calling God Father. Robert Jensen says that it's as if we're piggybacking on our older brother, Jesus, and allowing him with his, his prayer, Father, we share in that, we join him in that, and he takes us into the presence of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the, the engine, the, the dynamism of our life in Christ. I like the way John Webster, a theologian, uh, sadly recently deceased, says the Spirit is the agent, the actor of the subjective realization of Christ's objective accomplishment of salvation. That's technical language, but what he's getting at is that Jesus has done something for us. Jesus has opened the way to the Father, and the Spirit is the way that that, that victory of Christ comes to bear on us. The Spirit, by prompting us to pray, Abba, Father, draws us in to that great Easter triumph of Jesus. Well, how does the Spirit do this? One of the points that the early church had to grapple with is the question of the, what we might call the, the being of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And it took a long time, but what, what the early church came to recognize is that the only way the Spirit can perform that kind of work among us is if the Spirit is not somehow detached from God, distant from God, other than God. No, the Spirit himself is one with God. The Spirit is God now among us. God is, we now confess in the creed, triune, three in one, three in unity. The, the one that Jesus knew as Father, Jesus the Son, and the Spirit that they share, that Spirit is God with us. If you look at the bottom of your handout, there's a, a quote here from St. Gregory of Nazianzus in one of his orations. This is toward the bottom of page one. He says, if the Holy Spirit did not exist from the beginning, he has the same rank as I have, though with a slight priority. We are both separated from God by time. That's, that's to say, if the Spirit is not God. If he has the same rank as I have, how can he make me God? How can he link me with God, with deity? 
And if we were to read on, we would see St. Gregory pressing us to recognize the Spirit is not other than God. The Spirit is God's very presence with us, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. And that is why he can convey all the blessings of redemption to us. In fact, all the blessings of redemption, we might say, the grace of God, we might say, is personal. It's the Holy Spirit himself living within us, enabling us to share in that prayer of Jesus, calling out to God as Father. Well, friends, how does this, how does this work? How do you experience the Spirit now? I want to reflect with you for a bit on the, what we might say are the means by which the Spirit enables us to share in the life of God. How does it actually look, practically speaking? And I want to talk a bit about Scripture. Uh, our, our topic for today is the Spirit and Scripture. And one of the ways that the New Testament talks about Scripture is that it, there's, a, there's an interesting word that St. Paul uses uh, in, in, in his letter to Timothy. He says the, the scriptures are spirated. You hear the connection with spirit? Spirated or inspired. And what he means is that one of the ways, one of the primary ways, the chief way we might say, that the spirit comes to enter into our experience is by addressing us, talking to us, through the words of Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is, we might say, the, the breathing out, the spirating, the, the speaking of God to us through the Spirit. And what that means is that we need to be people who are cultivating an intimate relationship with Scripture. I want to talk just a little bit about what this might look like. One of the ancient practices of the church is known with a Latin phrase, Lectio Divina, or we might say divine reading, spiritual reading. There's a beautiful book uh, just recently published by a professor at Neshota House Theological Seminary, one of our Episcopal seminaries, by a professor named Hans Borsma. And the title of the book, I love it, it's called Pierced by Love. And he says, that's what, that's what this Lectio Divina is all about. That's what this divine reading is all about, being pierced in our innermost being by the, by the love of God. We're, we're addressed by the Holy Spirit so that we might know God's love for us more and more. And the way the, the early Christians and medieval Christians talked about this is by talking about different moments within Lectio Divina, different, different aspects of spiritual reading. And I'll just mention these. One is simply reading the text, opening up the text, and lingering over the words. For me, I have to put my phone out of sight. I have to try to get in a place where I'm not distracted and just, just linger over the words, savor them. Like if you were uh, uh, savoring a, a cough drop or something like that, a lozenge. The next step is meditation. Turning the text over in your mind, letting its words roll around in your imagination. And a lot of Christians have found it helpful to, to begin to try to practice memorizing Scripture. I haven't been consistent in my Christian life on this, but the times when I have focused on memorizing Scripture, I can say have been profoundly 
meaningful in my life. Because if I'm driving my car or, or, you know, walking through the neighborhood with my dog, I can still be turning over the words in my mind because I'm not, I'm not just relying on the printed page. I'm, I've, I've put them in my memory. And there are different ways we might think about doing that, which perhaps we can talk about in the Q&A. Thirdly, Lectio Divina involves prayer. Taking the words of Scripture into our being, but then returning them to God, so to speak, as prayer. It's interesting, isn't it, that we talk about Scripture as the Word of God to us when so much of Scripture is our address to God. Think about the Psalms. We say these are God's gift to us. These are the Spirit's uh, conveying of God's word to us. But the form that the Psalms take is our address to God. So we internalize the words of Scripture and we return it to God. I myself did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. I came to it later in life. But one of the things that drew me was the practice of morning and evening prayer, which is right at the very beginning of our Book of Common Prayer. And if you, if you follow that practice, you're going to be reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you're going to be praying the Psalms every single day, morning and night. And this is, I think, one of the great gifts and treasures of the Episcopal Church. And I would encourage all of you, if you don't have one, to get a hold of a prayer book. And uh, you, you might also prefer to get an app for your phone. There's a wonderful app called the Venite, uh, V-E-N-I-T-E. Uh, look that up, and, and, and you might consider building this into your daily life, praying what we call the daily office, morning and evening prayer. Or if you can't manage both, just pray morning prayer or evening prayer. And let those, those words of Scripture lodge themselves in your heart so that you can return them to God. You can speak them back to God in prayer. And then finally, Lectio Divina involves contemplation. I know that's a big word, perhaps a scary word for some of us, but it simply means that the point of all this, the point of all this reading of Scripture is not so that I can gain a bunch of facts about ancient Israel or, or Jerusalem in the, in the early church, although that may be good. But the point is I'm engaging Scripture because I want to contemplate God. I want to see God. I want to know God. And the promise of Christian faith is that one day we will all see God. It's referred to as the beatific vision, the, the sight, the vision that makes you blessed. That's the point. That's why we read scripture. We read it to encounter and relate to the one we love and the one we hope to know face to face in God's future. Scripture is meant to be read in and with the church as well. This is how the Spirit comes to grip our lives. Private reading, morning and evening prayer, uh, is, is great, although many churches uh, offer morning and evening prayer as a communal event, and, and all churches, including our church, invite us into corporate prayer every single Sunday. We hear Scripture read. We take it in through our ears with one another. And we talk about it with one another, like we're doing this morning. We, we engage with one another about what we've heard. Scripture isn't just a, a private experience between me and God in the, in the privacy of my own prayer closet or what have you. It's about joining with other believers 
to hear scripture, to, to talk about scripture, to say, I found this amazing, or I found this really puzzling, or I don't know how to handle this. It disturbs me a bit. And as we engage in that kind of holy conversation with one another, the spirit is active among us, drawing us deeper into this life with God. I want to refer you to the back page of the handout. And I want to read this uh, paragraph here from Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer, of course, was uh, the one responsible for giving us our prayer book. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury and was martyred for his faith. Listen to his words here. He says, in reading of God's word, a person most profiteth, not always that is most ready in turning of the book or in saying of it without the book, but he that is most turned into it, that is most inspired by the Holy Ghost, most in his heart and life altered and changed into that thing which he readeth, he that is daily less and less proud, less wrathful, less covetous, and less desirous of worldly and vain pleasures. He that daily, forsaking his old vicious life, increaseth in virtue more and more. And to be short, there is nothing that more maintaineth godliness of the mind and driveth away ungodliness than doth the continual reading or hearing of God's word if it be joined with a godly mind and a good affection to know and follow God's will. Cranmer was intensely interested in the daily, mundane, experienced reality of God speaking to us through Scripture. That was the whole point of creating the prayer book, is to get ordinary Christians, not just the, the clerics, not just the, the, the fancy people who knew how to read the commentaries, but you and I, ordinary Christians, getting us deeper into the scriptures so that ungodliness might be driven away more and more from our lives and our minds and our imaginations and our hearts might be more and more tuned in to what God is saying. I can tell you just from my own experience, I'm not always consistent in praying morning and evening prayer, but when I, when I miss it these days, I really feel the absence of it. It's become a kind of anchor for me. Uh, one, one friend of mine, uh, Catherine Green McCright, she has suffered immensely from mental health challenges, and she says, one of the only things that keeps me steady in my life is strapping myself to the Psalms. And she says, morning and evening prayer is how I do that. I, 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 I bind myself to the Psalms. And when I can't pray on my own, when I don't know how to, to make it through another day, I let those words carry me into the heart of God. I'd like to end by reading a, a poem by George Herbert, and then we'll have uh, just a few minutes for some questions. This is uh, a poem called The Holy Scriptures. And it's, it's Herbert delighting in Scripture and modeling for us what it would look like to embrace this kind of love of Scripture, not, not just for its own sake, not for antiquarian interest, not just for intellectual interest, but so that we might be formed more and more to long for God, to long to see the face of God, 
and to grow in godliness, to grow in Christ-likeness. Here's Herbert. Oh, book, infinite sweetness. Let my heart suck every letter and a honey gain, precious for any grief in any part, to clear the breast, to mollify all pain. Thou art all health, health thriving, till it make a full eternity. Thou art a mass of strange delights where we may wish and take. Ladies, look here. This is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. This is the well that washes what it shows. Who can endear thy praise too much? Thou art heaven's ledger here, working against the states of death and hell. Thou art joy's Hansel. Heaven lies flat in thee, subject to every mounter's bended knee. If you'll let me, I just want to highlight one phrase there that means so much to me. Herbert says, Scripture is the well that washes what it shows. If you engage with Scripture, it's going to show you more and more how far you are from God in many ways. It's going to show you what Cranmer calls your ungodliness. It's going to show you how much you and I fall short. But it's a well, as you look at that image of your, of your failing, of your ungodliness, it's a well that washes what it shows. It washes that away because it conveys to you the Holy Spirit of the risen Jesus, who is God's own grace in person for all of us. Amen. Let's have some, let's have some questions. Hi, Wes. I have a more historical question that goes back to the very beginning. Sure. You talked about uh, in Peter's letter referring to Scripture from the Old Testament, bringing it to Jesus, making it true. I always understood that he was a humble fisherman. Now, is this because all Jews, Jewish men, were taught this and knew this innate? I mean, knew this in their soul, or is this? more because he was divinely inspired because he'd known Christ? Excellent question. Yeah, so, so early on I, I spoke about, um, you know, there the, there the apostles are in Jerusalem. Jesus has, has ascended. Uh, they're now wondering, you know, how are we going to proclaim this? How are we going to live into this message? And the Spirit rushes in on them, and Peter is the one who stands up and preaches a sermon on Pentecost and says, you know, all of this that you're seeing and experiencing right now, this is in fulfillment of the prophecies. Um, I think we should probably imagine there that, that yes, Peter is someone who, uh, even though he was a humble fisherman, he's a faithful Jew. He would, have, he would have heard the scriptures from a young age. He would have heard them read in the synagogue. But we, I think we should also imagine, as we see in, in Luke chapter 24, the risen Jesus himself is the one who reinterprets the scriptures to the early apostles. You remember uh, that, that, that line in Luke 24 where they're, they're, he's walking with two, two people on the road to Emmaus, and it says he opened their eyes to understand all that was written about himself in the scriptures. So we might even imagine Jesus himself saying to Peter, look at Ezekiel, look at Joel, look at Jeremiah, you know, understand all of this in relation to me and to the, and to the Holy Spirit. Great, great question. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hill, for your great talk. I'd uh, like to ask you, 
First of all, do you believe it's possible for modern Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And secondly, uh, is being filled with the Holy Spirit necessitated by a faith in Christ or is a faith in Christ necessitating being filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I absolutely do believe that, that modern Christians can be, can be and are filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I, I do want to distinguish that reality from our awareness of that reality, which can come and go. So I wouldn't want to necessarily tie our faith in the Holy Spirit to a particular experience, such as a miraculous healing, for example, or, or speaking in tongues, although I think those things are, are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, we see, we see, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, the Spirit is the one who drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So the Spirit is not always about warm, fuzzy happiness. You know, the Spirit is, is about conforming us to Christ. Um, and that's, that's the second point. It is the Spirit of Jesus. Now, that's not to say the Spirit is only at work among those of us who know Jesus and believe in Jesus. I think the Spirit is at work throughout all the world, wooing and drawing and convicting and enlivening. But that Spirit, whether people know it or not, is the Spirit of the risen Jesus. And so faith in Jesus, I think, is, is absolutely at the heart of what it means to know the Holy Spirit and experience the Holy Spirit. Hi, Dr. Hill. Good morning. Uh, when we think about the Trinity, it seems obvious why we need a different identifier for Jesus because he presented himself so radically different incarnate. But if we believe the Holy Spirit is God and that God can also be among us, why is it necessary to have this kind of separate identifier in the Holy Spirit? Thank you. If I understand the question correctly, I think I would say uh, before Jesus shows up on the scene, all throughout the, Holy, all throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit is the way that the Old Testament talks about God rushing and moving in the history of God's people. So, uh, you know, the Spirit is described in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, as sort of hovering over uh, the primordial waters of creation. The Spirit is the one who rushes on the prophets and gives them words to speak. So I think, I think when Jesus arrives, what, what happens is not that we get somehow a, a brand new experience, but we recognize that that, that personal presence of God, uh, Dallas Willard called the, the Holy Spirit the unbodily personal power of God, which I think is a pretty good uh, definition. We recognize that, that that is sort of focused and, and crystallized in Jesus. Uh, so, so the Spirit language comes from the Old Testament, but it's, it's sort of now it's, it's anchored specifically to, to the risen Lord. I hope that helps. Thank you for listening to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth. Join us next week for episode four titled, Who Are We? Part One, A Pilgrim People, A Christian Theory of the Human. Those in the Dallas area are invited to join us on Wednesday nights as we dive deeper into our weekly topics in a dynamic group discussion. This podcast is produced by Church of the Incarnation, located in Dallas, Texas. Our sound engineer is Robert Nash. Our theme song is Raise a Voice by Emery. Follow us on Instagram at IncarnationDFW or on Facebook at Church of the Incarnation. For more information on our church, please visit our website, www.incarnation.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>